Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Maggie Hennefeld, author of the book Spectres of Slapstick and Silent Film Comedians, published in 2018 by Columbia University Press. She is Assistant Professor of Cultural Studies and Comparative Literature at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Maggie reviews the important films from the early days of movies and how many of them featured female comedians in unusual cinematic roles. Filmmakers created many works where women were the main characters in slapstick and other strange stories. In our talk, we review these works and how they are important for their use of women as well as the political aspects of the suffragette movement and other feminist activities. Welcome to Maggie Hennefeld. Hi, Maggie. It's great to talk to you. Hi, Joel. Thanks so much for having me. I think you're the first author interview that I've arranged completely through Twitter, although we did finally switch to email, (laughs) although I'm glad glad it worked out. Me too. It was one of the more delightful updates I've ever seen on Twitter, the invitation from you. Better than the daily news headlines. Well, that's true too. I really believe that we are in a great time in many ways for academic publishing because it allows authors such as yourself to study topics that are specialized, but still interesting and thought-provoking. Let's get a little background about you though, because you've studied film for much of your academic life, but let's talk about movies in your real life and, and how you led to them and actually got to a point where you felt it was something that could be useful for a career. Yeah, that's what a great question. I've always been a cinephile. I just love movies. I love old movies and comedy, especially. Um, You know, I've always loved to laugh. I have very fond early childhood memories of watching Marx Brothers films and a lot of kind of classic Hollywood screwball comedies with my dad when I was a little kid growing up. And I did, I've dabbled in some comedic performance myself. I've done some comedic improv. Uh, at, at some point, um, I fully intend to do an open mic night, you know, I, though I haven't crossed that threshold yet. And um, yeah, I've always just been a lover of old movies. I go to a lot of silent film festivals to this day. Um, and obviously, you know, my, my education is in film and media studies, but it's, you know, it's, it's not just a job. It's also a passion. Yeah, I must admit, I took a film course early on in my college career, mostly just to get what I thought at the time was just to get some credits. And (laughs) uh, yet it turned out to be, even though I've never uh, done anything academically related to film, it's still one of those things where the more I I tend to get into esoteric a lot and I like watching Mm -hmm. things that uh, the average person doesn't think about when it comes to film. So this podcast sort of came out of that because I've been doing this now for like five years and so many different topics that I've learned about just from listening to authors and films and things that I've found that I never would have thought of before. So silent films are not normally 
the interest of <laughs> many film experts. When did you you talked a little bit about it, but when were you first introduced to silent films as as a group? Yeah, I remember watching uh Charlie Chaplin films that part of the kind of Marx Brother revival screenings of my debt. We watched some Chaplins, we watched some Buster Keatons and Harold Lloyds. And obviously in this book, I talk about slapstick comedians, all of the funny women in silent slapstick comedy. So it's part of a, a corrective to my early childhood silent film education. Um, but I remember just having, sometimes you watch a movie and you can never unsee it for better or for worse. So I remember some very vivid encounters with particular silent films throughout kind of high school, college, grad school. There's one uh, Lon Chaney horror film called The Unknown from 1927 that I watched in college. And the, the plot is just insane. Lon Chaney plays an armless knife thrower in the circus. Um, right. He throws the, the knives with his feet um, and he's desperately in love with the daughter of the circus manager, who fortunately for him has a phobia of men's hands. So he thinks he's in luck. Um, but as it turns out, he's not really handless. He's hiding them under his um, shirt to conceal his second thumb. He has like six fingers on one hand because it would identify him as a serial killer. And the plot just gets kind of crazier from there. I don't want to give too much away. But silent film was really an art. I mean, um, some of the, like the, the movies I watched from this period, right from the 1890s through the 1920s, they really blow my mind. They're far from popcorn flicks. So if there are any listeners just sort of tuning in who are kind of curious about silent cinema but no, don't know much about it, I really encourage you to get your feet wet. You you won't have any regrets. <laughs> yeah, in, in the film class I taught or taught went took in college, uh, the we only saw one silent film, but it was Intolerance. So. Um, oh yeah, that's that's a well. I hesitate to use the word slog, but here we are. Yeah, well, some <laughs> of the well, that's the problem with D.W. Griffith. You have to deal with a lot of things, and 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 it still comes down to the fact that uh, movies can be very political, and uh, as we're going to talk about with your book, but uh, there's no question that Griffith was uh, one of those people that uh, the politics right. is wrapped up even today with him. Oh, yeah. I mean, he like whether you want to say he was intentionally racist or his films were instrumental to, you know, racism, the resurgence of the Klan, uh, you know, that's that's Griffith's history. Um, no need to whitewash it. Yeah, I, re I interviewed some uh, an author, Dick Lair, who wrote a book about D.W. Griffith, Griffith and the and the gentleman who was the main uh, person who was fighting against his film. Uh, particularly in the Boston area, and it was a very interesting political study of what was going on at the time, and mm. and the fight to uh, uh, over the film, you know, the infamous band in Boston concept right. in, in that film. Now, mm. obviously, yeah. obviously, your book discusses the work of female comedians in slapstick films. The title, yeah. the title says it all, <laughs> and I'm sure this is something that many people weren't don't really think about or aren't aware of um, most of that time. Like you say, with when you think slapstick, you're not always, even though women may be in the films, they're not necessarily the performers. They're mostly the uh, straight people or the, the other people. And yet uh, you were able to, to draw a great portrait of them. Why were they so important in these early films? What, what was the 
unusual aspect of them? Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, first of all, um, I think there's we're in a kind of moment of renaissance right now for women in comedy, feminist comedy. And there's all this buzz about how this is totally new and unprecedented. You know, who knew that women could be funny? So part of the work I'm trying to do in this book is to draw out the long, robust history of hilarious women performing with great popularity and visibility in the comedy genre. In fact, the popularity of these slapstick comedian films from the late 19th, early 20th century was part of what helped establish cinema as a kind of cultural staple when it was just this kind of fledgling new medium and no one knew how it was going to be used. And just a little bit of context for viewers who aren't super familiar with the term early cinema. This is kind of You know, when film was a radical new technology, oftentimes films were incredibly short. Um, There's one of the earliest films from 1894 is called Record of a Sneeze. And it's about five minutes long, I mean, five seconds long. And it's literally just about the ability of cinema to record a man sneezing. He looks at the camera, he sneezes and it's done. So early cinema is about the powers of visual display, the ability to uh, record and represent movement. Performers addressing the camera, bowing, laughing, smirking, winking, you know, just something happening, the ability to record a kind of dramatic action or spectacle. So it was not, as we commonly associate uh, cinema with now, it was not about telling stories with fleshed out kind of psychologically compelling characters where you as a spectator sort of disappear as a body and become immersed in the narrative. Cinema wasn't a storytelling medium Really, until the late 19 aughts, throughout the 1910s, it was used more and more that way. In the beginning, it was just, you know, about the power of spectacle. And slapstick, you know, what is slapstick? Um, In distinction to screwball comedy or other genres of comedy, slapstick slapstick comedy is about, um, you know, physical forms of humor, right? Someone getting hit over the head with a frying pan and, you know, bouncing back right away. People get injured, humiliated, you know, have horrible things happen to them in the slapstick genre, but it's okay. We know that the violence isn't real. We know that the injury is impermanent or reversible. So we're able to take pleasure in it, uh, not take it seriously, find it funny. Um, So that's what these slapstick films are doing. So there's an entire subgenre of early slapstick comedian films that I write about in the book. I have a a chapter on comedies of domestic catastrophe, and there's a subgenre of film in which women spontaneously combust out of the chimney while doing housework. Um, There's one in particular called Mary Jane's Mishap. It's a British film made in 1903, starring the hilarious comedian performer Laura Bailey. uh, And she plays a housemaid named Mary Jane. She's kind of, you know, going about her daily domestic chores. She's making the fire. She pours a little bit too much paraffin wax onto the fire. Um, And as a result, spontaneously combusts out of the chimney. And then, uh, and, you know, we see her explode out of the chimney in a a trick cut. And then her body parts rain down over the village skyline. And then we go to her gravestone, which has the kind of like pithy epitaph, here lies Mary Jane, rest in pieces, right? So even her eulogy is a pun. 
And then she rises as this ectoplasmic specter. That's part of kind of the play that I'm doing with the title Specters of Slapstick. And she does a sort of gleeful little ghost dance at her own tombstone and terrifies some passing spectators. But things like this happened. You know, the world was changing in the early 20th century. Uh, The suffragette movement was taking off. Women were busting out of the domestic sphere, infiltrating the workforce, trying to participate more and more in um, public sphere politics. Right for Mary Jane, the only way out of the home was through the chimney. But for other women, there were various avenues into the public sphere, uh, uh, you know, besides the chimney. So um, I think that's also what part of what made these films so kind of popular and important. They have a really important overlooked place in the history of cinema, no doubt. They're incredibly funny. You can watch Mary Jane's Mishap on YouTube. I encourage everyone to do so. Um, But they're also about politics. They're about the um, important role of comedy in the emergence of feminist politics. You know, people people respond to... um, to humor. Uh, Humor is persuasive. It's part of the art of rhetoric. And I think um, feminism uh, in the early 20th century was much enriched for uh, the circulation of feminist arguments via early slapstick film comedy. Now, how long was this film? I mean, you know, you said you could watch it, but how long was it in length? Oh, it's just a few minutes long. Viewers are in luck. You know, you can do it in between, uh, you know, checking emails and messaging on twitter now was there any uh title cards during it or was it literally all 100 percent visual except for the tombstone 100 percent visual except for the tombstone but there would have been um there were some intertitles by the early 20th century but not not many i think because you know intertitles the sort of uh dialogue or narrative context provided by the intertitle is more associated with film storytelling with narrative. And like I said, these early films were more about action and less about story. Well, using that's this film, cause it's a great example. Uh, who were making them? I mean, who, who were the individual, do we know who actually made this particular film? Yeah. So the filmmaker of Mary Jane's mishap is, um, uh, George Albert Smith, uh, a British filmmaker, his wife, Laura Bailey is the star and he made, a handful of um, trick films, slapstick comedies, um, uh, some actualities displaying um, uh, new technologies and film color. He he was pretty prolific, but uh, yeah, a lot of early films, sometimes the director's name isn't mentioned in the credit, just the production company, like Biograph or, or Vitagraph without much information about the filmmaker, but there were a lot of women working as directors in the silent film industry. Um, Some feminist historians have made the argument that um, proportionally there were more women working as producers and filmmakers in the silent film industry then than there are now. You know, we talk about these kinds of industry uh, representation politics and gender inequity in Hollywood today. Um, Shelley Stamp has written a really important book on Lois Weber, and she just curated a new keynote DVD set on pioneer women filmmakers. One, uh, a, a number I talk about in the book, Mabel Norman, she was a super popular slapstick comedian who was also a filmmaker. She actually directed 
Charlie Chaplin in his debut silent film role as the tramp in a film called Mabel's Busy Day. There's a filmmaker named Alice Guy Blachet, Alice Guy Blachet. Um, she was French. She emigrated to America and made something like over 500 films throughout her career between 1896 and the early 1920s. Some were short, others were longer. Alice Guy Blachet, over 500 films, and no one talks about her. Isn't that crazy? So I'm trying to set the record straight about all of the work that women filmmakers did in particular. What's interesting is that um, you mentioned Lois Weber. Uh, there's another podcast I listen to. It's a newer one, uh, Mo Rock of CBS, called Mobituaries. He did, a, he did an episode earlier called The Forgotten Forerunners, and he talks about Lois Weber. He, she was the... He described her as the woman who ruled a Hollywood a hundred years ago. And, that is a very apt description. And so uh, the good thing is, yes, you're right. It's not <laughs> these folks aren't discussed, but the good thing is, every once in a while, there's somebody out there who uh, um, who brings up some of these people. But that's great to even give context at uh, how important they were. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I wish I could have talked about Lois Weber's films more in my book, but unfortunately, she didn't make. Uh, very many comedies, a couple of sort of, you know, um, uh, moments of levity in her melodramas that I allude to in the book. But but Alice Guy made a number of comedies. Um, there, there are a couple I talk about at length. One is called Madame's Cravings that, that Alice Guy uh, stars in as well. I think it was made in 1906. And it's another one you can watch on YouTube. It's totally hilarious. She plays a pregnant woman who sort of wanders around the public sphere um, and every time, you know, she has a maternity craving, she just steals the item of desire from whomever. Like she takes a child's lollipop. She takes a pickled herring for some reason from a beggar. She steals someone's cigar. And then you sort of see her indulging in her object of oral desire episodically. Uh, yeah, Madame's cravings. It's totally hilarious. So basically, then, these aren't necessarily films that men were making to somehow portray women all the time, although I'm going to guess that did happen most <laughs> yes, of the time. You, you guess right. You guess right. There were, you know, a little bit, the whole gamut. Um, and in some of the films, you know, that, that uh, there are male actors. Uh, there's one famous female impersonator, Gilbert Saroni, who plays a version of the Mary Jane character, uh, an Irish-American immigrant named Bridget McKean, who also spontaneously combusts out of the chimney. So, yeah, there are men playing women, women playing men, men directing women, women directing women, you know, the whole smorgasbord. So, obviously, these are the in initial period when films were starting to appear as you know, more than just showing, like you say, a sneeze or a train going by or, you know, those kind of things. And we can see some of those early Edison type films that are still around that are, that's all they exist of is that part. But we start to get more and more into where the belief is, well, we've got to do more than just show things. We have to actually get into starting to tell stories. And, of course, they start right. with short, very short, but then begin to stretch out. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's part of the history that I'm tracing in this book. I talk about um, a transitional period of cinema. I'm really interested in historical transitions, you know, how... Um, 
like you say, the movement from just short form spectacle to longer kind of film stories, how this kind of play with the potential uses of cinema as a medium helped navigate other sorts of historical changes, like all of the kind of political changes unfolding in American and European society in the early 20th century. But Mary Jane's mishap is a good example of how films um, in a more sort of rudimentary way, began to take on a little bit of that narrative function, right? It's not just that the housemaid combusts, but you have the the trick cut, and there she goes out of the chimney, you know, where from the interior of the home to a new space, the kind of village skyline with all of the rooftops, and then her dismemberment, oftentimes the kind of... Um, uh, dismemberment of human bodies becomes an impetus for cutting from one shot to the next. Like uh, there's another film called The Kitchen Maid's Dream, uh, a Vitagraph film. I, we don't know the filmmaker, but it was made by a, another early film production company called Vitagraph that was based in Brooklyn in 1907. A kitchen maid who's exploited, tired, overworked, falls asleep and dreams that she can disembody her own hands. Um, so uh, her, her limbs will do her housework for her while the rest of her body can take, you know, a very much needed, well-deserved nap. And that sort of curiosity, like, OK, here's the sleeping torso. What are the limbs doing? Becomes um, the motivation for the cut. Right. You have to cut to a different space to see the hands, you know, dusting the floor. So these films, obviously, they were making the most of the visual aspect, which of course is all they had at the time since there was no sound. So it, it was, it was a hundred percent visual medium. Um, is, were, were they trying to show off? I mean, was it the idea in some ways, the filmmakers to show off that they could do these kind of things, they could present them. So that's, that could not be truer. The early filmmakers were miserable showboats and, you know, Georges Méliès, the magician, um, or maybe more aptly, uh, Segundo de Chamon, a French trick filmmaker whose magic films always starred uh, his wife, an incredible um, you know, performer, Julienne Mathieu, would often take a bow, wink at the camera, like, look what I can do, look what I can do with my camera. Um, but just to the point about how early film was a purely visual me medium, uh, that's kind of true on, you know, there was no sync sound um, printed onto the film strip as with, you know, the talkies. But uh, silent cinema is also an enormous uh, misnomer because these films were almost never projected in silence. There was always some kind of audio accompaniment, whether it was, you know, a piano player, organ player, a full orchestra, a lecturer, maybe showing travelogue slides, uh, talking about... Um, you know, like indigenous culture in Mexico alongside, um, uh, you know, travel slides, actualities of a filmmaker's journey there. So there was always some kind of uh, sound. Cinema was still an audio visual medium, just in a really different way, I guess. One of your points, though, is that many of these early performers and filmmakers, for that matter, have been ignored in film histories. Mm, yeah. What do you what were what are your I mean I know you talk about it obviously but what are your uh, beliefs as to why this happened? I think that there was um, there there's been a kind of canon established in film studies uh, at least since the mid twentieth century you know when film became an academic field that was taught in at a university level 
And, you know, once there's a canon, um, it's very hard to break from it. People just sort of roll with the familiar examples because someone's already done the work uh, to establish the importance of Charlie Chaplin, of Buster Keaton, um, D.W. Griffith, whoever. And it takes an incredible amount of labor, you know, tedious labor going through the archives, but then a certain amount of, you know, charisma, showmanship, um, intellectual labor to establish, to make the argument, no, there were all these women working in the silent film industry. There were all these um, uh, slapstick comedians who were incredibly popular um, in, you know, during the early years of the genre. Um, and beyond just look at this, you know, you can always kind of fill in the blind spots of film history and people acknowledge your point. They're like, oh yeah, you're right. There were women there. But I think what I try to do in the book is to make an argument, um, uh, uh, make the argument for why we need to continue thinking about um, the sort of political role that women in comedy played in the suffragette movement or the kind of technological uh, narrative function of these early slapstick comedian films for establishing cinema as a kind of legitimate cultural medium in the first place. Otherwise, it just becomes a revolving door of forgetting and remembering. So as time then started to move forward and we get into the early teens and, and where the film industry came, became really a real industry mm-hmm. uh, where business, it was a business, they were businesses and the concept of studios and things like that. Mm-hmm. How did the role of these comedians adjust to newer uh, methods of filmmaking? I think in various ways. I mean, there's um, an established argument that as film tried to become a middle class medium, you know, something that you, know, you uh, uh, the film theater is a space you, uh, you can take your kids to and and not have to worry. Um, into the through, that this was happening throughout the late 19 aughts and into the 19 teens. Because uh, around the Nickelodeon boom, 1905 to 1907, when all of these dedicated film theaters, these kinds of CD storefront film theaters started to pop up, uh, the film theater was a very uh, CD place. Um, it was not uh, a, a nice kind of bourgeois pastime to go to the movies. There was, and there were fire hazards. You know, there were like 500 theater fires in the year 1906 alone, um, uh, hanky-panky in the theater, women getting molested, people hooking up in the theater, people worried about like what would happen to their kids if they go to the theater, violence in the theaters. So films telling stories, um, avoiding the kind of purient spectacle that was the basis of early film slapstick was part and parcel of cleaning up the film theaters. And we see these campaigns, these reformist campaigns unfolding throughout the, um, throughout the silent era. And one thing that happens to women in comedy is that um, slapstick starts to take a backseat to comedies of manners, like uh, the Jones series, um, uh, Florence Lawrence was one of the earliest movie stars. Um, and D.W. Griffith made uh, this this comedy series. It was basically like a, you know, family sitcom version of early silent cinema. 
and when you know, like a husband and wife episodically get into a squabble over some crazy antic and then make up. So it was less about, you know, like um, suffragettes playing insane pranks on parliament. And then you know, the like slapstick genre has so many images of anarchic dis- discuss- um, destruction and bodily unruliness. And that started to go away and take a little bit of a, black- a backseat to the comedies of manners. And that's one thing that happened in... Uh, the silent film industry. It's funny reading, hearing we, the film industry went through these cycles mm-hmm. of having to, as you point out, as you said, it clean up, and we see it over and over again, at least until the uh, till the uh, the main MPAA appears that pretty much mm-hmm. controls things. Once we get into the regular studio era, at least as far as the average film is concerned. Yeah. And there were censorship codes, but they might have been implemented on a local level um, and and enforced unevenly. There wasn't this kind of um, centralized uh, censorship board the way there was, you know, in with the, with the Hayes Code in the um, uh, classical Hollywood period in the early silent film industry. Now, you also talk about that there were you made some comparisons between american and european films that there mm-hmm. was that w- the european film industry was a viable industry already at this point mm-hmm. and you compare some of these examples on how uh they were made both in the united states and in europe what were some of the differences or similarities that you saw yeah so um America didn't become the kind of dominant national film producer um, until really after World War One. Though it was uh, as a national film industry, American America American filmmakers were trying to establish themselves that way. Uh, you know, prior to the war, I think that in terms of the slapstick comedy genre, European films were much darker and more violent. Um, and sadistic than American comedies, which tended to hold back a little bit more. There are all these European um, comic series produced by the the French Pate Company, the French Gaumont Company. Uh, one series that I'm really interested in that I talk about in the book is called the Leontine series, which was made in France, but then um, exhibited in the U.S. Uh, and the the uh, lead character uh, was known as Betty in the United States. And there were about 25 episodes of the series made from 1910 to 1912. I think watching the European slapstick comedian series from the 1910s, you could easily predict World War One. Uh, you could predict the outbreak of war because there was just so much violent energy. Um, um, uh, violent energy that would erupt through um, uh, comical violence in these films, but you know there was something in the air, uh, and you can see you could see it in the movies. And uh, Leontine or Betty in these films, like there's one called Betty's Electric Battery, where she just goes around electrocuting everyone with this you know new battery technology she's found. Or she loved to play with string; she would trip people with string. And then, um, you know, run away and a lynch mob would kind of be forming around her as she's playing these kind of sadistic, episodic pranks on her family and neighbors. Um, But I think that uh, slapstick comedy can be therapeutic, like even images of grisly, sadistic violence. You know, there's some kind of steam. There's some kind of being blown up. There's some kind of release that we experience 
um, by laughing uproariously at images of, you know, anarchic, destructive violence. Well, going in forward then with that, um, one of your other major uh, points in the book is the political aspect uh, mm. of the group of, you know, the, of these films and, and the people that were actually making them and appearing in them. And as you've already pointed out, we're right in that period of time where the suffragette movement is just about ready to finally uh, win, but it's, it's, it's the run up to it and, and other similar aspects. So uh, how did uh, the, these women present uh, examples of this as far as political, both positively and, in, and even possibly negatively? Oh yeah. I mean, and there were, dozens if not hundreds of suffragette themed comedies made, um, you know, in the early 1900s, 19 teens in the U S that 19th amendment, um, uh, was, was ratified in early 1920, which gave women the, the right to vote. Um, and they cut their politics cut both ways. There are some, um, some suffragette comedies where women are just explicitly the butt of the joke while horrible things are happening to them. And I talk about those too, because I want to, um, you know, give due representation to the whole archive warts and all. I'm not looking to whitewash the history of comedy and feminism in early cinema by any means, but there are some, um, suffragette comedies that are, that are fierce. I mean, they're feminist films. I see them that way. There's one called the suffragette sheriff, that's unfortunately no longer extant. extant. Um, it's a lost film. Something like over 90% of silent films are currently lost. But I've read about it extensively in film magazines, trade press reviews. And a woman is a suffragette's elected sheriff, and her husband doesn't like it one bit. So he tries to get her to resign by framing himself for murder. It's a very complicated... I mean, framing himself for murder, so she'll have to preside over his execution and then quit rather than, you know, like electrocute her husband. But she gets in on the prank. I mean, uh, and then um, sort of one ups him. She pretends that she's going to go through with it. And then he's like, what? You're going to kill your own husband. And then, you know, everything um, is resolved. But yeah, it's a total like that film has an explicitly feminist politics. There's one called the suffragettes um, dream where uh, a kind of battered housewife has this vivid fantasy sequence that women have taken over government and are completely empowered. And that's really inspiring. But then at the end of the film, she wakes up from her dream and her husband comes home and he's mad that she was dozing off. And, um, you know, there's no food on the table and he beats her. And that's the kind of, uh, you know, comical punishment at the woman's expense at the end of the film. And I think you can read that film both ways, like it has an ultimately very perverse conservative message. But then there are these sort of radical visions of female revelation during the sort of midsection of the film. And I think most of the films I talk about land in the middle. Their politics cut both ways. I mean, if I only limited myself to films with an explicitly redemptive, purely feminist message in this book, um, it would be a pamphlet, you know, not a, a, a feature length book. Uh, and that's something I try to think about um, the political ambiguity um, and, and the question of what are we actually laughing at when we watch movies like this and can watch the ask the same sorts of examples of our own comedy today. 
So one of the film, one of the major film, filmmakers you you, you discuss separately is D.W. Griffith, and we've already mentioned him briefly. Uh, yeah. And because obviously he's an incredibly important figure during this period, and probably the most important if you really for this period in particular, as far as anybody that even the average person at least would probably recognize the name. What was Griffith's role in in, in using slapsticks? excuse me, slapstick comedians in his, in his works. Yeah, he, I mean, obviously he's best known for his racist melodramas like Birth of a Nation. He did make a number of uh, kind of short split reel slapstick comedies. Like there's one called Those Awful Hats. Um, there was this problem in early film theaters that women wore uh very large hats and spectators behind them couldn't see the screen. So in this film, uh, a theater, a manager installs a large crane that removes women's hats when they refuse to take them off themselves. And one woman played by the comedian Flora Finch um, gets lifted up, you know, to the ceiling of the theater along with her hat when she refuses to take it off her head. So a lot of comedies featuring really, you know, fierce slapstick comedians and his oeuvre. But I think the main kind of critical work I'm trying to do in this chapter is to sort of debunk the myth of his pioneering genius, um, you know, as the, the the father of narrative cinema who innovated all of the conventions and narrative storytelling that wouldn't have existed without him. And I think that's total bunk. And I look closely at his films, both his slapstick comedies and his melodramas, a number of which star um, primar- uh, uh, female performers known primarily for their comedic chops, like Mabel Normand or Flora Finch. And I look closely at um, some of these melodramas starring the slapstick comedians, like one film called uh, Mender of Nets or Her Awakening, and they make no sense on a kind of visual narrative level. And oftentimes where uh, Griffith's own craft, right, his own art of star- storytelling falls short, women just fill in the gaps with their outrageous bodily gestures. And that's what makes the films coherent. Um, Female physicality, not Griffith's parallel editing or the kind of syntax of his use of kind of cutting and visual juxtaposition to uh, create meaning between shots. It's the women's bodies that's primarily doing the work in these transitional films. And that's the argument I want to make in this chapter. So the, the, I wanted to maybe not back up, but go into a slightly more um, overview for, for a second here related to the actual performers and filmmakers for that matter, yeah. female. Yeah. What were their, were these career? I mean, I know in many cases you mentioned that they were either spouses of, of filmmakers right. or, you know, they weren't quote unquote professional uh, comedians, but were right. there people who had outside work as comic you know comedians um, mm. before or as part of this overall work or was pretty much their work was just in these films uh i mean you know there's there's a whole um there's a whole gamut a number of early film performers worked in vaudeville in the variety theater um i mean some early films were simply uh you know lifted directly from popular vaudeville uh, performances. I mean, um, Florence Turner, 
who uh, is the cover image of my book. Um, she was also known as the Vitagraph Girl. She did a number of stage performances, um, you know, as a, a, a impersonator, um, a vaudeville impersonator, in addition to appearing as a prolific screen performer. I mean, and, and other um, other comedians mainly worked in cinema. Not all of them were known, like they, they weren't necessarily a household name. Um, Florence Turner, before she was Florence Turner, was the Vitagraph girl because she was the star player for the Vitagraph film company. Florence Lawrence, I guess at the time, it, if you wanted to work in cinema, it helped to be named Florence. Um, Florence Lawrence was the the biograph girl. Um, and film stardom itself wasn't really a kind of trademark concept until around 1907, 1908. Prior to that time, um, you know, a lot of folks would just appear in films anonymously or if they were known as names, it was through other mediums. I mean, in films, like I said, there weren't dedicated film theaters until the Nickelodeon boom around 1905. So a short film might be shown, um, you know, at a, 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 a mid of vaudeville variety show, you know, after a family of traveling circus performers and before, you know, a headline um, a comic act or something like that. It's interesting, like you say, that the name Florence means something in, in Hollywood because we see it over and over again later on, even although nowadays generally you only hear the name is selling insurance on television. But uh, <laughs> now let's talk about your resources. I always like talking about this because I'm a librarian and I liked hearing about archives and things like that. So yeah. I'm sure, as we've already talked about, very few of these films are available and that's unfortunate but there's nothing we can do about that right but how difficult was it to develop useful ideas especially about movies that you couldn't see and how did you do it i mean it was a fun challenge you kind of have to fill in the gaps with your own imagination sometimes um i watched i researched these films every which way so i first saw mary jane's mishap on youtube so that was just kismet that was happenstance there are some um DVD collections of early cinema where I was able to watch other films that haven't been digitized and uploaded into the cloud. Um, I did extensive research at film archives, particularly the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., uh, where, you know, because so many of the early film companies before film moved out west were based in the New York, New Jersey area. So a lot of these films, when they were copyrighted, were registered with the Library of Congress. I could watch even if they're incomplete, I could at least walk, like look at, um, you know, isolated film frames there. So I had some kind of image to work with. I watched some films at the French Cinematheque in Paris, at the British Film Institute at, in London. There are, believe it or not, um, archival revival festivals dedicated to silent cinema. So there's the um, uh, uh, Giornate del Cinema Muto, the uh, silent film festival in Pordenone, Italy, about an hour outside of Venice. And that takes place every year in uh, early October. And I go every year. My friend and I curated a program on the nasty women of silent cinema there a couple years ago. We're doing an another program this fall at Pordenone, uh, drawing on a lot of the films I talk about in my book. Um, and then other films are simply non-extant. You know, I don't even have an image from them. I might have like a crazy short film review uh, 
like, you know, a woman dismembers her limbs to finish her housework on time. Or here's one from 1906, The Doll's Revenge. A sadistic brother is, you know, like uh, brutalizing his little sister's treasured doll. So the little girl possesses the body of her own doll. And while, you know, she is um, inhabiting her doll, she eats her older brother, like the doll eats the brother. So these films have crazy plots and they were just a pleasure to read about, but also totally bizarre to read about because it's like a little girl eating her brother. Um, And, you know, you, you leave a certain amount to the imagination and that makes it as fun as anything else. And, you know, part of the book, like I want to draw attention to these films. I want people to have an uh, mental image of what these films are doing, even if they can't watch them. So I have an extensive annotated um, filmography at the end of the book where I give archival context uh, about all of these films, you know, title year, is it still extant? If so, where can you watch it? And then a short, pithy, uh, hopefully kind of funny uh, synopsis of the film. Um, so uh let's see let's try to find an example i'm just scrolling through right now uh ma and law mesmerized 1908 a beleaguered son-in-law makes his overbearing mother-in-law disappear by practicing mesmerism you know there's a plot we can all identify with the old mother-in-law joke um but yeah there are, it's hopefully a, a valuable resource for people who want to know more about these films but um don't want to do the archival legwork themselves. Oh, can I read one more? The Vacuum Cleaner Nightmare from 1906. An insane vacuum cleaner eats up women's bodies and spits them out again, new and improved. So a lot of these films were very oral too. There are a lot of punchlines involving ingestion, the eating of bodies, often cannibalism, whether people eating people, machines eating people, people eating machines, you know, it's like, it's totally wild. Were there backlashes against these films during the period? I mean, obviously, we know some of them, like you've already talked about during the quote-unquote cleanup that, that that things changed. But these kind of films, once as, as time goes on, are, are there specific backlashes against them as a group or individual ones? Yeah, and it was slapstick comedy in particular that the reformists targeted, um, you know, because they're they're sort of body they that b-a-w-d-y they cater to a kind of period gaze um some of them are pornographic like there's what happened on 23rd street and the whole joke is that you know a gust of wind blows up a woman's skirt um so you know reformists people who wanted cinema to be a kind of like clean and warm and fuzzy medium were not all about those types of uh, pornographic punchlines. And you can imagine, you know, I think the suffragette movement for all its kind of antagonisms, you know, within the movement had mixed feelings about this type of entertainment culture, especially when in examples where it's not clear uh, what side of the punchline women land on. And I think this is why women have kind of been written out of the history of physical comedy in particular over and over again, because slapstick comedy is a genre, it's all about, like, like we're talking about, um, uh, image of violence inflicted on women's bodies, right? Laughing at violence against women. That's not good. You know, what's the line between um, edgy, you know, like radical, playful, and insulting, offensive? Uh, there are a number of early film comedies that I call comedies of sexual predation, 
uh, in which women are sexually assaulted. You know, one in one film, a woman is just assaulted in the post office while she's licking stamps. And this guy just like jumps in and kisses her. And then their faces get stuck together. And it's sort of a joke. And the postal clerk has to cut their faces apart. And part of his mustache uh, ends up on, you know, her on her face instead. So it's, it's funny. You know, I'm uncomfortable with it. My retrospective laughter is uneasy uh, in reference to that film, you know, is it, are we simply laughing at violence against women? Or is the joke not about uh, raping women, but about rape culture itself in, you know, the kind of Lindy West, uh, Roxanne Gay sense, there's a difference between a rape joke and a joke about rape culture. Um, And that's part of the question that you know, I ask myself while I'm laughing at these films, um, you know, what am I laughing at? And uh, I guess it's particularly hard to say when the film itself doesn't exist, but uh, does it doesn't exist anymore. But these are questions for the ages and um, no less timely now than they were circa 1907, I think. Yeah, me too and time's up. And, you know, I was sort of going to ask you next about, I mean, that was one of the things I wondered about is, do these films have a message for today? I mean, obviously we're talking quite a bit about that, but yeah. uh, obviously today none of these films, first off, they wouldn't have been considered comedies probably. I mean, we do still have slapstick, but you usually don't have people losing body parts. Uh, but right. although well, you, you get close. Yeah, that's I true. think that like Death Becomes Her, or if you watch Inside Amy Schumer, I think about Inside Amy Schumer, her, you know, Comedy Central show all the time in reference to early cinema, because often the skit on, you know, the kind of feminist skit on that show will end with catastrophic violence, like people's heads spontaneously exploding or committing, you know, ritual mass suicide, but in an absurdist comical way. So I think we still have, you know, slapstick violence today in our entertainment culture, certainly via YouTube videos. I mean, early cinema is all too at home among the kind of viral video media sphere, you know, which is, you know, very much about short form, ridiculous spectacle. But yeah, I think I think these films are super timely. I think they raise a lot of questions for today, not just about, you know, uh, is this funny? Is it awful? What are we laughing at? But Oftentimes we laugh at things that we don't understand ourselves. As Georges Bataille said, the French surrealist, and I talk about his theories in my book, we laugh at the unknown. You know, laughing isn't just a form of unknowing. We laugh at the unknown itself. You know, when something confuses us or tickles us, laughter is a way of negotiating the things we're still trying to figure out ourselves. So comedy in reference to sexual violence, uh, comedy about climate change, comedy about racism, like racial satire, the kind of satire we see in Sorry to Bother You or Black Klansmen or Insecure, um, you know, or Key and Peel or something like that, I think helps us figure out what we're doing. Um, these are the topics that we're very confused by both kind of individually, emotionally, but also kind of socially, collectively, politically. And I think that's the work that silent film comedy is doing um, in relation to feminism, the feminist movement, in relation to the labor movement. You know, a lot of these early slapstick films take place in the workplace, Um, you know, not just, you know, housemaids exploding, but women working in the factory. 
you know, there are comedies that take, you know, where women um, uh, destroy the machines, the destroy the factory that has, you know, an explicit kind of class politics, uh, intersectional feminist comedies about racism that, you know, there are the trigger warning there. Are, there's blackface minstrelsy in these films that I talk about on sometimes films with great gender politics and horrible racial politics um, and clearly a relationship between the two, but we're still trying to figure out what they are. Is it that the film is progressive about feminism, but monstrous in terms of its racism or somewhere in between a little bit of both at once. Uh, and we see those sorts of ambiguities about like what sort of political work is our laughter doing in this example where I'm thinking of the, the kind of sheet caking skit on Saturday night live with Tina Fey after um, the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, where Tina Fey, you know, this was this was awful. A woman died, was run over by a car. You know, white supremacy is back on the march. This is so this isn't funny. It's too soon to laugh at it. And the joke of that Saturday Night Live skit by Tina Fey, who I think is super funny, was just sort of like, like, let's eat our feelings. And that felt a little bit on the nose or too much too soon. And I think about that skit a lot because it's like on a physical level, like watching Tina Fey stuff her face with sheet cake was super funny. But in reference to Charlottesville, it was like way too soon, like a little tone deaf. Um, and that's kind of how I contextualize, you know, the way in which we might sort of laugh at or against some of the early films that I talk about in my book as well. Well, of course, this is it's it's an issue that will always I mean, when you look back and mm -hmm. we're, we're talking about looking back over 100 years ago, obviously, but right. you can look back 10 years ago and look at films and say, did we really think that was funny at the time? Uh, oh, my God. It's so true. It's so uncomfortable. So it's not unusual that, 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 that that's why I say I figured it would have some sort of a meaning for today because we're still going mm -hmm. through this. And especially when it comes to yeah. female comedians where uh, – most of the time they weren't comedians. When you think about it, in most films, even if it's comics, the, the, the female lead's not there for comedy usually. Right. Um, and even the, even the actual female comedians, especially during the studio era, they were meant to, be, you know, it's the farce part of it. Ob the obvious example being Lucille Ball, who, right. who gets herself into trouble all the time on TV. You know, that was the key to the episode was getting herself into some sort of trouble. And that's, and even though obviously she was quite a bit of slapstick in some of her work, but a, a typical comedian, you know, she had her, she had her purpose and that was uh, to look silly. Right. Yeah. And that it's self-deprecating humor. And I think, I mean, if, I don't know if, um, did you watch Hannah Gadsby's Netflix special Nanette? Uh, that sort of went viral to uh, a lesbian uh, stand-up comedian from Tasmania. Super funny. I've been into our comedy for a while. You know, I teach a comedy survey course at the University of Minnesota. I've um, often shown, you know, before this Netflix special kind of exploded, shown my students her stand-up bits. And she does a lot of that. She uses a lot of that kind of self-deprecating humor uh, the way Lucille Ball does maybe. And I love Lucy. Um, but Nanette, she's like, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. Like these, um, uh, memories I'm recounting of, you know, being gang raped are far from funny. Why am I talking about them in the stand-up club for the purpose of your laughter and entertainment? And it's weird because it's for all intents and purposes, 
a stand-up comedy special, but during most of it, she's like kind of deconstructing the gender politics of the joke and telling her audience not to laugh because it's not mm-hmm. funny, but within the sort of rubric of comedy. So there's been a lot of really interesting discussion and debate about Nanette. And, um, you know, for me, as a kind of feminist comedy scholar, uh, dare I say, even a feminist comedian, um, that sort of question about the limits of self-deprecating humor to do a certain kind of progressive political work is super important and really, really fascinating. So it's not enough for women just to be like, ha ha, like, look how crazy I am. Look how weird my body is. Like, look at what an inept housewife I am and see women are funny. We're making fun of ourselves too. Like that's not quite enough. Um, and I kind of call that the unruly woman trope, the unruly woman paradigm, which has been a mainstay of feminist comedy scholarship and act and activism, women making fun of themselves to great hilarity. And the reverse side of the unruly woman is the feminist killjoy, which I guess we can call Hannah Gadsby. Though again, she's doing, uh, she's telling us not to laugh while herself performing comedy, which is interesting, but it's this caricature of feminist feminism um, as humorless, you know, shrill, spoil sport. And we've seen that kind of accusation launched against women any number of times. And that's part of the myth of the humorless feminist that I'm very much trying to correct in my book. But also what I'm trying to do is find a third way between the feminist killjoy and the unruly woman where the kind of politics of laughter and comedy cuts both ways, right? Like women are being like, don't laugh at that. That's not funny. It's really messed up. But while being funny themselves, um, but not just in a self-deprecating way, I'm finding a third way, the the slapstick comedian line or, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think I have, in fact, I know I have a really pithy uh, name for it in my book, but it escapes me. So folks, you're just going to have to read it to, to find out. <laughs> well, there you go. That's the way you, uh, that's the way you sell a book. You tell people the only way you're going to find out is by reading the book. It's absolutely true, Joel. Well, there's no question that, it's a great example of how we can use film history mm. as a way to continue to, and why it's important. I mean, the average person might think, well, you know, how important is this? You know, all these old films that most of which I can't even see, but, uh, most, but not all, not all right. That's the good thing. And okay. so, but the, you're, you're clearly showing, um, the importance of how even today, and it's cyclical too, and that's the other yeah. thing that comes through is the cycles that go up and down as far as various things. And hopefully, the current mediums, the way things are right now, that we'll start to see more and more of this middle middle ground or, or third way, as you pointed, right. make it so that so that we don't always have to be so worried about one way or the other, right. but we can enjoy it for what it is without having to be overly sensitive one way or the other. And, and, and that's a good thing just as well. So what, what do you have other writing? Are you in the middle of doing other writing plans or are you now working on other projects that uh, aren't necessarily related to, to writing? I am, uh, I'm writing a, a second book now on a topic that uh, <laughs> is maybe not entirely dissimilar from my first book. It's, Yet, you know, I'm still haunted by the specters of uh, female comedy circa the 19th, early 20th century. 
So this, this new book branched off from the research on my first one. Um, and it's about the social history of women's laughter and laughter is a symptom of female hysteria. And what sparked my interest in this specific topic was finding all of these, uh, obituary columns from the, um, mid to late 1900s about women who allegedly died from laughing too hard. Uh, like someone told her a funny joke and now she's in the morgue. I mean, really, and like where the, the obituaries themselves were kind of sadistically written, like almost making fun of the woman, like she becomes the butt of the joke for, for um, you know, laughing herself to death in the aftermath. But I found dozens, if not now hundreds of these obituary columns about women who allegedly laughed themselves to death. And I read them with a huge grain of salt. Like, I think maybe part of what was going on was female corsetry at the time. I mean, like women could barely breathe in these corsets, let alone laugh convulsively. So if they, in fact, did die from laughing too hard, which is just absurd, maybe the, the corset had more to do with it than the joke itself. Um, I was going to say, but, you're right. Laughing too hard and you were in a corset, you could suffocate. It's Yeah, it's really true. But I think also what's going on is that women were being cowed and terrified into believing that their laughter uh, might kill them. There's this brilliant, famous Margaret Atwood quote, um, uh, men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them. And I guess, you know, we see both of those things happening simultaneously with the death from laughter obituaries. There's something about women's sense of humor that the patriarchy is always feared because, you know, laughter is a source of power. Um, uh, uh, Laughter, ridicule exposes absurdity, hypocrisy, corruption. Um, you know, it's a way of speaking truth to power. And I think, you know, men or the patriarchy, I should say, uh, at the time certainly didn't want women to have access to those tools, um, uh, you know, to laughter as a source of power. So that's part of what's going on with the effort to suppress women's laughter. Uh, and I'm also looking at laughter as a symptom of clinical hysteria. You know, there are women perfectly, um, you know, um, normal, like fierce intellectual women gaslit into believing that they were insane when they probably weren't and banished to the institution. Uh, that's quite a checkered history of the long 19th century that I've been reading into and quite a flamboyant history as well. Like women were um, uh, given electric shocks, forced to have or hypnotized into having epileptic seizures in, in front of a live audience of medical peers. And most of the published research on female hysteria has more to do with um, other symptoms like somnambulism, hysterical paralysis, um, double vision. But laughter was also also a symptom. So I'm looking into the kind of um, archival history uh, or the clinical history of women's hysterical laughter, like laughter without enjoyment, mirthless laughter, crazy laughter, like when women laugh because they don't really, they're not given any other kind of social outlets um, uh, for what to do with their intellect and emotions. So they just kind of like laugh crazily. And, and I want to think about that, you know, why, what is this history of suppressed um, or untold women's laughter and what did it mean? You know, where else could that energy have gone and where might it still go in the future? That's the book I'm writing now. I'll give you a book title. We'll call it, you can call it The Women Who Laughed. No. The Women Who Laughed. No, I don't have a title, but oh, okay. maybe I'll it's death from laughter, female hysteria, and early cinema. Well, I like 
who laughed. Well, that sort of take off on the man who laughed. I mean, I've heard I've heard that phrase before. As kid, you know, as far as well, the good thing though, and the, and there's one good thing is that uh, nowadays, especially with places like Netflix and and other similar uh, uh, services, where we get a chance to see differences. I mean, you know the back in the day when you had people like Joan Rivers being the only female comedian who was regularly working on television in the entertainment areas. And nowadays yeah. we've got the ability. Or Carol Burnett. And right. Snowfall. But yeah, there were few and far between. But now we get the ability to see not only female comedians, mm. but we're also getting more and more a chance to see people with other backgrounds, ethnic and, and na- nationalities and, and it is so interesting because to me, learning how they laugh, these folks laugh, <clears> is always a good thing. And the humor is, it does show how much universality there is to humor. Yeah, feminist comedy is where it's at right now. And it's a super diverse field. Like I've been really into um, Ali Wong's stand up specials on Netflix, like uh, Baby Cobra and Hard Knock Wife. Right. I love Issa Rae, uh, Insecure, and awkward black girl. I think she's super funny and podcasting too, like do two dope Queens who now I guess have a HBO spinoff of their podcast, but feminist comedy is everywhere. You know, it's like the, maybe the best thing about our current cultural moment, um, uh, which is a mixed bag if there ever was one. Uh, and it can really go anywhere. I'm so excited about all the potentials of feminist comedy and, and women's laughter, too. Like there was a woman arrested a couple of years ago who almost faced a year in prison. Desiree Farouz, a feminist code pink protester for laughing out loud at um, Jeff Sessions, attorney general confirmation hearings. Right. Um, and uh, uh, a feminist reading group, uh, mostly uh, black women on a Napa Valley wine train, maybe about five years ago, um, who, you know, were, it's a wine train. They were drinking wine, reading literature and kind of, you know, and laughing loudly as one does on a wine train. And they were arrested or, or kicked off the train for, for laughing, you know, too disruptively. Um, and it spawned this viral social media hashtag laughing while black. Um, there are a lot of examples like that. A couple of years ago, there was a Turkish a politician who tried to ban women's laughter in public, which resulted in all of these, uh, you know, feminist bloggers and YouTubers just like taking pictures of themselves laughing and posting them online, making video recordings of themselves laughing and posting them on the internet. So there's still this anxiety about women's laughter and, you know, vibrant culture of, you know, feminists laughing out loud on social media and the public sphere, wherever, like it's still as important today as it was you know, however many decades or hundreds of years ago. Hundreds of years. Now, to yep. me, though, isn't that what you do with farce? You laugh at it. I mean, in so many of these, it's like you can't believe what you're hearing or seeing. So, of course, you have to laugh at it. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's all this discourse, like some news headline about Trump being posted with the caption, not an Onion article. Right. It's like absurdity without laughter, or we laugh in disbelief, even though we feel far from amused. Or the parentheses, this is true. I mean, that this, ca- this actually happened, you know, because you yeah. can't tell anymore on certain things. And, it's, and it is one of those things where you just have to laugh, because what else are you going to do? So, what else are you going to do? That's well, my life. <laughs> well, I appreciate this talk. Uh, it was very... It was worthwhile for a lot of reasons, obviously the information and the details from the book, but I think you 
you you showed a, a very good way of how these these pioneering people women uh still have relevance and uh definitely makes it worth people reaching out and 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 trying to get a better idea of them and and seeing them for the entertainers that they were and also the pioneers that they were yeah thank you so much i really appreciate that you know it's important we got to remember our history there's an old saying those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it <laughs> so there you go that's as much reason as any to to read the book and remember this history because who knows we might be in the same position again a hundred years from now or however many years from now but we you know have a role and to play in preventing that from happening so remember the past never forget so thank you for joining me thanks joel thanks so much for having me i hope you enjoyed my conversation with maggie hennefeld her book is a great view of how early films still serve an important role in modern day culture thanks for listening to new books in film a podcast series on the new books network I'm your host, Joel Cherney. Thank you.